0: Everybody, welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Jacob Shop. joining me today. We got the styling, profiling guy with the coolest hair, Evan Roosh. <laughs> thank you. I
1: actually did do my hair today, so that's like a huge compliment. Looking good. But yeah, styling, I'm just wearing a Bucks jersey, which I kind of just realized like there's no good way to look in a jersey. No. They're always so big. Ba- like that. That's that. That's important. But I was just looking in the mirror and just thought, "Wow, this is. I look huge." <laughs> when
0: you wear the jersey, it, it really shows you. Like, I really need to get strong so that I can actually look good in this <laughs> right
1: and it's a Giannis Antetokounmpo jersey who is just the buffest man in the NBA he's got a
0: three-story mural now
1: <laughs> that is such a, a well-done mural too It oh, looks yeah. awesome the Super only thing cool. missing uh would have liked a little crown on top of that bad boy can always add right yeah there's still time but yeah we uh we
0: got Bucks playoffs game five against the Celtics tonight so Evan and I are excited to watch that after we finish up here but before we get to that, we're going to we're gonna go back in time, take a little trip in the time machine.
1: Uh.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're going to talk a lot about oxen yep. and wagons uh-huh. and how those two work together to get people out west.
1: Exactly. Talking about, A, of course, the Donner Party. Donner Party, with man. With a little side of Oregon it was, trail. And it
0: was a fun party until it... Wasn't yes, it's like the party is fun until that one guy that no one likes shows up
1: and then the vibe kind of changes and he just eats all of your salted bacon and flour and oats (laughs) and then traps you in the forest, right? Can you guys relate? (laughs) Yeah, you guys
0: have all been there, right?
1: Yeah, just another Saturday night, pretty much.
0: But yes, I am very excited to start this one. This the story of the Donner party is insane. And it really makes me appreciate living in the time period that I live in now, because I can 100% say with absolute certainty,
1: fuck that. Yeah, (laughs) I think we talk about it all the time. Just the classic question. If you could live in whatever time period, which time period would you choose? Honestly, I don't think I would choose right. anything other than right this second. Right now, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, we've got a lot of problems going on in the world right now, but yeah, as I've, I'm not dying by getting a broken bone, so
1: yeah, getting stung by or getting bit by a mosquito in the United States isn't a death sentence by the Illinois Shakes. Yeah, so <laughs> pretty content. with I where think I'm we're at. okay. Yeah,
0: but it is in. It's a very heart-wrenching story honestly it's it is one of the the well i mean the book that i use for this called the indifferent stars above by daniel james brown which fantastic book if you like historical nonfiction. he does a great job storytelling but it it, the byline on the book is the harrowing saga of the donner party and Mm -hmm. i think harrowing is the perfect word
1: for what happens in this story yeah, honestly, the perfect adjective, because just doing the research on it, it just keeps getting, just to summarize, it's, it's almost like, oh, that really sucks that that happened to them. Oh, that stinks. That happened too. And then it's just that for, you know, seven, eight months. Yeah. <laughs> Things just keep on getting worse and worse for them.
0: When you There's literally no rock bottom in this story until Mm-mm. it's over. Because there's always some something happening that makes it just that ever so slightly worse, and it's amazing to me that they took an already terrible time being on the Oregon Trail or just going out west in general, and somehow made it exponentially worse than the normal
1: they thought they had a cheat code, you know <laughs> they try to go on the uh, path less traveled, like a little Walt Whitman used to say and or maybe that was Robert Frost. I don't, I don't know. I only read like one book. <laughs> and you aren't finished with it yet. I have seven pages left. Oh, so we're so close. At the finish line. At the finish line. But yeah, it's just going... Let's just... When it comes to traveling way out west into unknown territory, maybe sick on the trail.
0: Yes. So for those of you that don't know anything about the Donner Party, basically... Uh, If you haven't heard, Manifest Destiny was the idea that the new American settlers were given all of the land from east to west. Each Each seaboard belonged to them and everything in between. So the white settlers decided, well, we've already gotten the east side pretty much down, so let's go out west and see what's over there. And that's what a lot of settlers decided to do in the 1840s with the Oregon Trail being established, which was the main route and then we have the donner party so even before the gold rush there was a ton of people that just wanted to go out west to find new land to find new opportunities settle down in what they had heard was a very beautiful area of the country and most took the oregon trail and then would go south from there but the donner party decided to listen to a new trail proposition and that didn't really end up very well for them, and that's the reason why we're obviously talking about them today. Because it's sad and Jacob wants to cover it. <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing story. Right. But as I said at the beginning, the harrowing story of the Donner Party, which begins with optimism, with hopes of adventure, ends in disp- ultimate despair and death in ways that really no one was ready to deal with. So it's very much a story of heroes, a story of
1: villains, and overall just a story of how unforgiving Mother Nature can be. Yeah, Mother Nature, uh, she's very fickle. She will, if you don't play your cards right at this time, you're, I mean, even a twisted ankle could be a death sentence. Yeah,
0: which is insane because you... A group that starts with almost ninety people and ends with less than half of that at the time that they finally reach their destination yeah. in a tr- in a journey that overall should it wasn't safe but it should have only killed maybe be five percent five to ten percent at most right and the fact that it took fifty percent is. Very much just a wild thing to have happen.
1: Honestly, Mother Nature could have called in a Harrier strike at any point. She was on a kill streak. Yeah, (laughs) honestly. But before we get into the Donner Party proper, we're going to give you guys a little background information.
0: Evan's got a lot of research that he did on the Oregon Trail, which is pretty much how all of this westward expansion started. And then from there, we will go onward to the Donner Party itself and how they ended up in the position that they ended up in.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the Oregon Trail, as many of you know from the, of course, we have to mention the video game, oh, the yeah. Oregon Trail video game, the classic, uh, for whatever reason, we played it in grade school, Oh yeah, like during school.
0: If you guys haven't played, there's, on, I think it's visitoregon.com has an online simulator for it. So if you have never played the Oregon Trail video game and you want to be upset for like 20 minutes straight because
1: everything goes wrong, then you can go play that. It's a good time. <laughs> It's a great simulation for uh, basically what was happening.
0: I think they overdid it a little bit. Oh, right. Made it a little more difficult than it had Not
1: everyone got uh, malaria. Yeah, not
0: everyone shit out their brains with dysentery, but... Yeah. (laughs) uh, That's not to say
1: that that never happened, (laughs) but... (laughs) Yeah, it was a little bit more spread out, I guess. Yeah. But uh, the Oregon Trail was roughly 2,000 miles, and it was a route from Independence, Missouri, uh, to Oregon City, Oregon and it was used by hundreds of thousands of american pioneers and specifically in the mid-1800s to emigrate west like we've been talking about thus far it was extremely brutal and it snaked through missouri and present-day kansas nebraska wyoming idaho and finally into oregon this must be, like, the last time Idaho had any, like, tourists. <laughs>
0: this and Ruby Ridge were, like, right. they're, too high, they're high points. <laughs> Neither right. of them are really, like, that great.
1: Right. I'm, so, I'm sorry, people from Idaho. You did not deserve that ricochet shot. <laughs> Do you think we'll just get angry fan mail I, from... <laughs> I'm thinking we'll be okay. <laughs> right. Um, but without the establishment of the Oregon Trail, and later on in 1850, the Oregon Donation Land Act... Uh, which, if you're unfamiliar with this act, as I suspect many of you may may be, uh, this encouraged settlement in the Oregon Territory. After American soldiers, and stop me if you've heard this before—forced natives out of their lands and into reservations, and this basically just gave a huge promise of cheap land. Uh, that if you could make it to the West Coast, uh, you had a great, great opportunity ahead of you for your if you were a white family and this is even
0: before any of this was established as territories California never officially became established as a territory it just Mm. pretty much became a state after we took it from the Mexicans Mm -hmm. because they were in control of everything pretty much from Northern California down through the states below it like Nevada Utah even and We just decided we're going to go to war with you take that land when we win and then use it for the people that already are here. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) America. (laughs) Play the greatest hits. Right. Play the hits. But from a lot of different sources, uh, they say that Robert Stewart of the Astorians, which were a group of fur traders who established Fort Astoria on the Columbia River in Western Oregon, actually was the first white man to use what later became known as the Oregon Trail. Stewart's 2,000-mile journey from Fort Astoria to St. Louis in 1810 took 10 months to complete, uh, but it was still much a much less rugged trail than when Lewis and Clark made their famous expedition out west. Uh, but other than just traders, merchants, and... Uh, potential explorers just dis- looking to discover and learn more about the land. It was really missionaries who truly established and used the Oregon Trail uh, in the traditional way that we think of it, you know, with the covered wagons and all that great stuff.
0: It's kind of insane that there's people literally whose profession was just being a mountain man. Yeah, and, <laughs> right. Literally, all your all your profession was was going out into unexplored lands where you could very well dive. And
1: just exploring and being like, yeah, this is a good place to be. Right. Like, that's—you definitely don't need a resume to get that one. No, you can you just, just leave. <laughs> but like I mentioned, uh, missionaries were the ones that really started the Oregon Trail, uh, specifically Marcus Whitman. So determined to spread Christianity to American Indians on the West Coast, Dr. and Protestant missionary Marcus Whitman— set out on horseback from the northeast in 1835 to prove that the westward trail to oregon could be traversed safely and further than ever before
0: hey look at me my name's marcus white man. you want me to take this land from you native American? i'm on my way <laughs> hey, let's just actually let's take the e out of my last name. let's make it whitman you know it makes it sound less scary
1: <laughs> that was nice that, was that definitely scared me at first <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh.
0: You weren't prepared for
1: my act-outs? Right. He was just like missionary by, you know what, loose association with the church. Just
0: put missionary on the name tag.
1: Yeah. Uh, Whitman's first attempt took him as far as Green River, uh, a meeting place for fur trappers and traders in the Rocky Mountains, which is by present day Daniel, Wyoming. And upon returning home, Whitman married and set out again. Uh, This time with his young wife, Narcissa, and another Protestant missionary couple. So, just a quick double date. Or not double date. Just a quick, like, couples date, I guess. Yeah, with my new
0: young wife. Right,
1: yeah, just a quick... Which,
0: if it's described as being young in this context, it's probably, like, 14. Right,
1: not acceptable today type young. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Ah, you're young
1: enough. You can help me out on my journey. You're not going to (laughs) die. See, you got young bones. (laughs) Hop on my horse. Uh, The party made it to Green River Rendezvous again uh, and then faced a grueling journey along Native American trails across the Rockies using Hudson Bay Company trappers as guides. They finally reached Fort Vancouver in Washington and built missionary posts. Uh, Whitman's post was at Wailatupa, And uh, amid the Cayuse Indians.
0: It's funny that we used the trails that the Native Americans made to rout out the Native Americans. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if that's not irony, I don't know what it is.
1: Right. And of course, just the most famous, like one of the most famous Indians, uh, Sacagawea leading Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Literally the entire time across the country, Uh, which lo and behold, kind of was their undoing. Yep. Uh, Whitman's small party proved that both men and women could travel west, uh, although not easily. Uh, Narcissa's accounts of the journey were published in the East, and slowly, more missionaries and settlers followed their path. And this became known as the Whitman Mission Route. Then in 1842, the Whitman Mission was closed by the American Missionary Board, and Whitman went back to the east on horseback, where he lobbied for continued funding of the mission work. Uh, and at this point, a huge, by I mean at the time standards, uh, group of a hundred pioneers were led by Elijah White. Wonder if there's any uh, relation to our man. The other,
0: once again, last name, Just, nah, doesn't doesn't promote friendliness <laughs> to the people living there,
1: <laughs> right? Hey, yeah, we had white men and then white. Uh, But he led 100 pioneers across the Oregon Trail. When Whitman headed west again, he met up with a huge wagon train destined for Oregon. And this group included 120 wagons, about 1,000 people, and thousands of livestock. And this trek began on May 22nd and lasted roughly five months. Now this, when people got word of this huge emigration of a thousand people and thousands of livestock because keep in mind there's plenty of oxen carrying the wagons and then there's also just a ton of horses as well as just your farm animals uh if you have this big of a group you can't afford to have farm animals with you uh once the successful journey happened and news got out This basically opened the floodgates for all of the migration along the Oregon Trail and thus began what historians know or refer as the Great Emigration of 1843. So
0: that's kind of just background on the Oregon Trail, which is, as you can tell, the reason why everyone decided, well, maybe there is a chance that we could go out west and find new land where no one is that we can stake our claim in for very cheap, get a lot of land and start a new life because around this time too the economy was kind of in the shithole oh yeah (laughs) and that's a main reason why a lot of people left because they figured well i'm not using this land that i have now to make any money so i might as well go out that way see if i can set up just a self-sustaining property and then go from there
1: right I mean, once our economy eventually crashes, I don't know if where we can go. I guess we <laughs> can just like hop on a rocket to the moon.
0: Yeah, we're kind of out of like places to go. So, unless we just start a war, which <laughs> don't put it past us.
1: <laughs> Say less.
0: <laughs> so, in Daniel James Brown's book, he uses the story to follow the Donner Party through the eyes of one particular woman whose name was Sarah Graves. She was a young, newlywed who had just left with her family from Illinois to go out West. So the Graves family had lived in Illinois for about 15 years. They dealt with all the harsh winters and yearly hassles of the illnesses that went around, which my favorite of those being labeled the Illinois Shakes, which Evan mentioned earlier. But it was discovered later that the Illinois Shakes was malaria, and... The annual side effects of having malaria, this particular strain of malaria, just made people shake. It literally physically made you shake.
1: Which is such a weird thing. You're just minding business, going about your day, then all of a sudden you start shaking like crazy.
0: Yeah. And it was said that the people didn't necessarily know that this was from the mosquitoes, but they didn't like the mosquitoes in general. So he paints a very funny picture of how people decided to deal with insects back in the day. Which, the biggest method that he mentioned was closing the flume on your fireplace, letting the entire house fill with smoke, opening the door back up, literally crawling into your house underneath the smoke after you close the door, and then open the flume back up so all the mosquitoes are out of your house. So you literally had to smoke out your entire house and hope that it just didn't burn down. That had
1: to lead to so many fires, my word.
0: So the Graves family were said to be a very hardy people. They braved the cold weather in the winters to help deliver food to their neighbors and farmed the not-so-productive swamplands that they sometimes encountered in the area. But as I said, it was a very depressed time for the economy in the U.S., so they're very hard up for cash. And just an example, the price for 100 pounds of pig meat that they used to sell, which used to It used to cash in around $4.20, which, that's crazy. But it actually sold for less than a dollar at some points in this time. So they're making less than a quarter of what they used to off of anything, pretty much. So once the economy started to recover, the Graves family decided we're selling our property here. We're going to move out west. And that's what they did. So by the spring of 1846, they packed up. And Franklin Graves went to the courthouse to sell his land. And then the same day that Franklin Graves, who was the father figure in the Graves family, went to the courthouse to sell, his daughter Sarah and her fiance, Jay Fostick, went to the courthouse as well and officially signed their marriage into law. What a day. Big day for the Graves family. So the family had heard that there was actually a new piece of frontier literature floating around, written by a man named Lansford Hastings. What an all-star this dude's going to turn out to be. Despite the previous shortcuts that people had tried on the trail ending in mostly disaster, people were still willing to try anything new because all of these mountain men seemed to know what they were talking about.
1: At least they should. (laughs) Right. When you spend so much time in the mountains, you think they could find a route or two maybe Ye- cut off a couple hundred miles on yeah the trip. and that was the promise cut off
0: like 300 miles but as we'll see didn't work out that way
1: yeah they were willing to risk less, like to these different routes to basically knock off entire month of travel
0: yes so this book known as the emigrant's guide proposed a new route out to the west and particularly to california this path veered off of the established Oregon Trail and proposed a shortcut through the Wasatch Mountains, the Utah Salt Flats, and then eventually through the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And it promised to shave off a couple hundred miles, and as Evan said, around a month of travel, which is huge back in that time. Pretty confident that the route was going to work, the Graves family left home, Newlywed Sarah, her new husband, all of the siblings, which I believe there's eight siblings, and another man named John Snyder, who was kind of a tag-along single man who was looking to go out west and decided it's probably better for me to join you guys than to go out alone. So let me tag along.
1: That's a crazy thing to just to do. Just a single man, really nothing else going on. Might as well just hit the old dusty trail.
0: With a family that you probably don't really know that well.
1: No. Yeah. Just, hey guys, can I just real quick literally hitch to your wagon?
0: Yep. So... Aside from the new route that was proposed in Lansford Hastings' book, it actually proposed different things that people should bring on the trail as well, which I believe a lot of these guidebooks would at the time. But just an example of some of the staples that these people were suggested to bring was, quote, at least 200 pounds of flour or meal, 150 pounds of bacon, 10 pounds of coffee, 20 pounds
1: of sugar, and 10 pounds of salt. Just insane numbers. That's a big grocery store trip. <laughs> right. I always think like when we do like a guy's trip or something that, oh, I'll just get some burgers and brats and call it a day. Yep. Nope. Just 150 pounds of bacon.
0: That's, that's going to keep you satisfied for a while. Yeah. Despite his information being good in some aspects, Lansford Hastings had, surprise, surprise, never taken this trail himself. <laughs> He just looked at the landscape and said, this should work. Let's try it out. <laughs> so I don't know if that's the best information you want to be going on. But from their perspective, they didn't know this. They he- de- they decided, we're going to listen to this experienced mountain man who's already done a lot of good work going out west. And
1: hopefully he knows what he's doing. Yeah, you never want to hear, you know what? It should, like you never want to hear the word should from a tour or from a guide. For literally picking up your entire life to move somewhere else. Right, yeah, just to recall, they literally sold all their possessions and got in a 6 by 12 foot long wagon, or a couple of them, and headed out. Yep. There was no going back for these people.
0: So once they left Illinois, they traveled pretty consistently until they reached a town known as St. Joe, Missouri, and this was kind of the last supply stop. As Evan said, Independence was the last jumping off point for the Oregon Trail, and that was true for this trail as well because they did take the established path until they would get to what would be known as the Hastings Cutoff, but St. Joe was the last place that had like doctors, a lot of shops for supplies, and stuff like that. So it was here where the Graves family left in late May to begin the journey west, hoping they'd brought enough to get them to California. But in this instance, the party had not listened to Lansford for one of his best pieces of advice that he had in his book. Do not leave any later than May 1st. And his warning of the consequences was very direct. Quote, unless you pass over the mountains in early in the fall, You are very liable to be detained by impassable mountains of snow until the next spring, or perhaps forever. The
1: Graves family left three weeks too late. Yeah, that's just before I just kind of, we compared notes just doing my own research, and yeah, you had to be on point, very on schedule with this trip, or else you just weren't going to make it through mountains. No matter how hard you try with a covered wagon, you can't just make it go through, like multiple feet of snow. Yeah, there's just not no way around it.
0: And they they did leave late, and Mother Nature decided to punish them duly for it because, as we'll find out later, the the weather didn't cooperate any or in any way to help these people. No. So,
1: in in some cases, it literally just went worse than like they've ever seen really yes. on the trail.
0: As I said, the Graves family with their wagon train and the 13 people included had met a few other families heading west and had heard of another family ahead of them that they planned to meet up with on the trail known as the Donner Party. Wayo. Sarah, she kind of viewed this trip as a wedding journey for her and Jay, which was kind of a thing that people did back in those times. They took wedding journeys. And a lot of the time, it wasn't a very far trip. It was maybe just visiting the nearest big big town, which could have been a thousand people at the time. Mm -hmm. But wedding journeys were kind of a thing people did to celebrate their marriage, kind of like a honeymoon, but not really. And she viewed this as, well, this is just an extended wedding journey for me and my new husband, Jay. So. Spirits were very high at the beginning, in at least the Graves family camp, but the Donner party camp was having a little bit of a struggle already. (laughs) So about 100 miles ahead of Sarah and her family, the Donners, another family known as the Reeds, who James Reed will become a very important figure in this story, and another family known as the Russells, were stopped by the Big Blue River, which had flooded from recent storms. And along with this flooding, James Reed's mother-in-law had passed away, which necessitated a short funeral. So by the time they had built a ferry to cross the river, it was already May 30th, which already on a late schedule and now getting pushed back even further. James Reed is very optimistic, though. He believed wholeheartedly in the path that he read about in Lansford Hastings' book, and he kept the party moving after his mother-in-law died and told him, "Well, we'll still make it, don't worry.
1: We'll scatter some ashes just in the Pacific Ocean. Yes.
0: So as we can see already, there's a lot of natural barriers these people had to go through to get to where they wanted to go. And if you've ever played the Oregon Trail game, you know that fording a river is not the safest endeavor.
1: Honestly, it's a 50-50 shot whether you're going to cross it or just straight up get swept up by... by the tides
0: yeah and if you didn't know the correct way to do it which was to go at an angle through the river you could go straight across and then you would have a direct cross stream going through your wagon pretty much and hoping that it didn't just topple it over taking the oxen with it probably a couple of your kids yeah so it was a very dangerous endeavor just to do something simple like cross a river
1: right yeah and i'm just very curious who was the first person to just have that light bulb like No, angle. We need to put this at angles. I took geography class. Trust me, angles.
0: Yeah, so you had either directly crossing, you could build a ferry to ferry your wagons across, which obviously took a longer time. Or you could hope that there was a bridge somewhere nearby that you could use that someone had made, which was probably very crude in general. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have many options at this point to cross rivers. And life in general on the trail was, as you've probably guessed, pretty unforgiving. If a woman was left a widow by the death of her husband on the trail, she would pretty much have to hope to rely on goodwill of the other families to help her out, but it was very hard for families to extend their own resources and still hope to be able to make the trip. So this was not a very good situation if you became widowed while on the trail. It was damn near a death sentence unless there is generosity to go around in between other parties.
1: Right. You really had to fend for yourself on this trail. Yeah.
0: So many of these, many of the women on the trail were forced to do physically intensive chores alongside other duties if they were perhaps a mother on top of just being a woman on the trail. And motherhood presented another set of challenges on the trail for, its, for itself. If couples decided that on the trail they wanted to get a little frisky, they ran the risk of pregnancies, obviously. And even if they decided to use the rudimentary birth control of the time, which mainly consisted of sheep gut condoms that men would use, it was very risky. There's no fail-safes, really, for, for stopping a pregnancy at this point in time.
1: Sheep gut condoms? Yeah. That, like, had to lead to so many types of diseases.
0: It literally... It is exactly what it sounds like. It's a portion of sheep intestines tied off at the end that people would use as condoms and you would have to reuse them. So (laughs) not only are you wearing part of a pig's intestine, you're then going to wash it in a dirty
1: river and reusing that. Again, I don't want to be in any other time period than right now. (laughs) In addition to these sheep gut
0: condoms, women also attempted to use sponges soaked in different mixtures believed to diminish the potency of sperm, most of the time having opposite effects because they would push the sponge into themselves and it would actually push the sperm further into their bodies and closer to where it would begin to mate with the eggs. So, it was, it was not very effective.
1: Yeah, not a lot of sex ed was going along. Nope. They, going around. For women in the precarious
0: situation of becoming pregnant on the trail, they faced a difficult decision. Pregnancy obviously put a lot of strain on a woman physically, especially considering that these travels could encompass a good amount of a pregnancy term. These trips lasted months. So, when these women... Needed to be in the best physical poss- possible physical condition to survive. Pregnancy could have meant the difference between life and death for them. Women had the luxury, though, of knowing that until they showed that they were pregnant, they could fool their husbands into thinking that they weren't. Because back in this time, anything to do with female physiology, and periods, and pregnancy, men were like, eh.
1: Gross. Gross. Your what does what now? I want nothing to do with that. Sorry, let me, let me reset. Your what does what now? <laughs> you did what? I'm the tr- I don't even want to hear about it.
0: <laughs> so, with this luxury of knowing their own bodies, women formed bands together to help each other out and came up with some remedies to not necessarily prevent pregnancies, but instead to terminate pregnancies. So a lot of the time, women would decide to go with vigorous exercise, such as horseback riding, something that would jostle their body a lot in hopes that it would induce a miscarriage. Other women took doses of literal poison to induce vomiting and hopefully a miscarriage. And it, it was nice that these women did form these groups because the elderly women would have more of a know-how They'd have family remedies. Sometimes families would have remedies that no one had heard of that their family only knew. So it was very much a system of communication and a culture that was looking out to make sure that everyone had the safest possible trip on the trail. And it's it sucks that they had to go to this route of terminating the pregnancy mm-hmm. to f- enable themselves to survive, but dr- drastic times call for drastic measures. So what are you going to do?
1: Right, Yeah. Like there's no way that we could wrap our heads around what this tra- like the amount of work that went on. What, what do you trail. What do you
0: mean two Cis- <laughs> cisgendered males? Uh, we we don't understand
1: what women had to go through on a trail in 1840. Nope, I don't know what it was like then, so don't know what it's like now. <laughs> don't trust
0: anything that bleeds for a month, you know. <laughs> oh Anyways,
1: especially in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, women obviously were not the only ones that were in danger on the trail. Another big issue was the safety of children. With parents having to do so much work on the trail, they obviously couldn't pay attention to their kids as much as they had hoped. So, children were kind of on their own a lot of the times. This left them in very vulnerable positions. According to Daniel James Brown's book, The Indifferent Stars Above, here is a list Of various things that children may encounter while on the trail that could cause them injury or death. They could fall under wagon wheels and be crushed to death or crippled, wander into the tall grass and never come back, get abducted by Native Americans, be swept away by rivers their families were attempting to ford, get bitten by rattlesnakes, struck by lightning, trampled by unruly oxen or horses, pummeled by turkey egg sized tail. Shot by the accidental discharges of their father's weapons, they could die of measles, diphtheria, whooping cough, influenza, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, malaria, infected cuts, food poisoning, mumps, and smallpox.
1: Just to name a few. (laughs) Just a couple. Talk about the greatest hits of diseases. Uh Wow.
0: Yeah. I just love that they could just literally wander into the grass, never come back,
1: yeah, wander into too tall of grass, and oh, I literally am too short to see over this tall grass
0: because we can't even begin to imagine how actually intense these wildernesses were, yeah, because now we have the luxury of everything pretty much being gentrified and like all done up for us to just travel
1: through, but yeah, it's
0: a primitive landscape for all intents and purposes.
1: Just wandering into tall grass, and yeah, so tall that you can't even see where your wagon is. Bye-bye. Oh, Papa. Yeah,
0: they would sew their like children's names into their clothes, but it's, it's funny because the paragraph lists all these ways to die, and then they're like, yeah, mothers would sew their kids' names into their clothes. It wouldn't stop them from drowning, but then they'd know that it was their kid. Right. They which know. is like,
1: okay, yeah, good, thanks. Right, they know which kid is just gone.
0: Yes, Thanks, Timmy. I'm glad you kept your clothes on so that I knew it was you. Hey, Timmy boy. Thanks
1: for being a pal.
0: (laughs) So for groups in general, everyone pretty much had to walk the whole way to save weight for the oxen because it was such a long trip. So they traveled through the dust, which would be so thick that they wouldn't be able to see the wagon ahead of them during windy days. In addition to the dust, the heat for the Donner Party group specifically was steadily climbing as they approached the Utah Salt Flats. If these, train, these wagon trains would stop for meals, they had to deal with all sorts of insects, such as yellow jackets and mosquitoes, and the gnats and other insects swarmed in such large numbers that it was said some of the animals would literally die of asphyxiation because of how many bugs
1: there were. That is probably one of the grossest visuals we've had on this podcast. It wasn't fun. It was not a fun trail to be on. No, sir.
0: All of this can be added to the fact that many of these families joined up with one another because of a similar goal, meaning stronger odds for survival, which in turn meant that a lot of these people barely knew each other. And this was a huge issue that began to plague the Donner Party by the end of June in 1846.
1: Yeah, going with relative strangers meant that you really didn't have any trust, like trust established with who you're traveling with. And this was the most life or death route I believe, like in America, yeah, no, by far, and you just don't trust the people that you're with, and that led to a lot of issues. Well, just with like all the different dangers that were actually on the trail, and you know, we just mentioned that people that you were traveling with you typically didn't trust. One of the more cool things about just, I guess, settlers and pioneers in general. It was the measles, wasn't it? It was. They they shared everything, including typhoid. But travelers often left some sort of warning message to basically give a heads up to the people journeying behind them. If there was anything from like outbreak of one of the 17 diseases that Jacob (laughs) listed before, or if there was a really uh, perilous river coming up, or if there were hostile American Indian tribes nearby. And as more and more settlers actually headed west, uh, just the Oregon Trail in general did become a more well-beaten path, but one of the funnier things I saw, it was just a junkyard of abandoned possessions. Oh, yeah. So you could just be traveling and see a priceless family heirloom just laying there because while the other wagons had to just leave it behind. And then naturally it became a, complete graveyard uh, for tens of thousands of pioneer men, women, children, and of course, livestock.
0: Yeah, I I think at the end of this book is where I saw it, that if you laid out the n- number of people that were dead along the trail, if you spaced them out evenly from Independence, Missouri, every 50 feet, it would span 2,000 miles or something similar to that. So... There's lots of people dying on this yeah. trail. So basically just about the same size as the trail itself. It's a walking graveyard, yes. With all that said, tensions were getting somewhat high in the different wagon train groups that were headed west right now. So on June 27th, 1846, the leading party of the Donners and Reeds met up with a man who was named James Clyman at Fort Laramie. James Clyman had just parted ways with the titular Lansford Hastings on their way through the new route that Lansford had proposed in the Emigrant's Guide. And Kleiman had quickly decided that this sucks. I'm going back.
1: (laughs) You're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) This sucks. I'm going home. Yeah.
0: So he sat down with James Reed, who is an old friend from the Black Hawk Wars, and decided to tell James Reed, don't take this trail. It's not a good idea. And James Reed was like, "James, come on, I I know this is good. We're we're gonna keep going."
1: He was like, "Buddy, it's me. Listen, it's, it's me.
0: It's James Reed. I'm the guy. I am the guy.
1: Yeah, who you think you are? I am. He's traveling
0: with a literal double stacked wagon." <laughs> <laughs> with, like, a group of people he doesn't
1: know. Right. And he's just like, guys, guys, it's me. It's James Reed. You, yeah. You know, this is the first time I've been the leader of anything. You think I'm letting go of this power? <laughs> so Kleiman was
0: like, all right, you guys are on your own. And the Donner slash Reed party continued on. So Kleiman continued back east and met up with Sarah and the rest of the Graves party and warned them as well. But they all continued onward to catch up with the Donner and Reed party, which was still a decent ways ahead of them. So by the time the graves reached Fort Laramie, which is where the Donner party had just left, it was July 4th. You know what that means? Everyone's got to stop, get hammered and light fireworks.
1: Absolutely the American way.
0: It was said that like everyone got dr- really drunk on the whiskey they brought and mm-hmm. you could just hear musket fire for like miles around. <laughs> which I mean, makes sense you're in the middle of like a su- flat part of the the country right now. You're headed towards like a very flat part of land. So everyone's just maybe 10 miles ahead of you. And it's very easy to hear them.
1: Right. Yeah. There's a lot of echo in mountains, but it's interesting just that since we're mentioning July 4th and with the trail, technically they were just extremely And like we've already established this, but they were still extremely far behind schedule. Yeah. By this time, by July 4th, if you were making this trip, you wanted to be at least to Independence Rock, which was a huge granite, monument which marks the actual halfway journey on the oregon trail itself um so they were just extremely and grandly they didn't take the exact oregon trail i know that but they were just still way behind schedule yeah
0: because this is july 4th and they left in the middle of april from illinois so by this point they should be thousands of miles further than where they are pretty yeah. much so the russell party which was originally with the donners and was now kind of accompanying the Graves family. Was now headed by a man named Lilburn Boggs, which is a funny name, but he was a terrible human being. So, he was a former governor of Missouri who had previously placed the only extermination order on a group of people when he told all of the Missourians to either chase the Mormons out of Missouri or kill them all. So, not a good track record. Not a good guy. He was almost killed by the Mormons. He was shot in the head three times, somehow survived, and ended up here. So, that's just straight up stubbornness. <laughs> yeah. Stubbornness and luck. With a name like Lilburn, you kind of have to be stubborn to survive. Right. He's definitely one of the last bosses. So he was now leading the party with the Russells and now the Graves. So Sarah and her family had kind of caught up with the Russell party and were kind of shaking and moving, doing a kind of accordion style, going ahead, coming back. Everyone was kind of passing each other because that's the thing about the trail when you think about a wagon train, you're probably imagining tr- like wagon on wagon for with maybe 50 to 100 feet in between. These wagons would stretch for miles apart from each other and then kind of reconvene at the end of the day wherever they camped. So throughout the day, you could be out of eyesight of some of your party members and then just hope that they're stopping at a certain point that you can catch up. These growing numbers didn't necessarily mean that they were safe though. For example, Mary Ann Graves, who is Sarah's younger sister, was almost stolen by Native Americans and was only stopped once one of the Graves' boys pointed a gun at the Native American and he let go of Mary Ann and they were on their way. A little scary. A little startling. And that's kind of a misconception about trail life. Indians weren't as big of a deal as they're made out to be in, say, the Oregon Trail video game. Yeah. (laughs) There was instances where the Natives would be harmful to a group, but most of the time it was just they would watch them pass through and that would be that. So, with all of this going on, tensions were still rising even more in the groups. At one point, knives were pulled out and then cooler heads prevailed, they were put away. And one man in particular who was traveling with the Donner and Reed party, whose name was Louis Kesseberg, was particularly unpopular after rumors began to spread that he was beating his wife who had just given birth and that's not the first time louis Kessberg is going to be one of the worst people in this story along with all of this tension women were constantly gossiping saying that person's not doing enough or she's not doing enough so all of this group all of these groups who didn't really know each other were now starting to come to heads with each other because no one trusted anyone enough to just continue on the journey as they were.
1: This was a defi- This was definitely a hostile work environment.
0: Yeah. When someone has to put down in their journal that they stayed at a place known as Mad Women Camp, I don't think everyone's having a great time. No, not. <laughs> and more importantly, physically they were in trouble because grass was becoming more and more scarce. And if you know anything about oxen, that is the fuel that runs the trains, is grass. So this meant that families had to begin abandoning their goods to lighten up the loads in the wagons so that the oxen didn't have as hard of a time. Pretty much anything non-essential was given up. Some of the family possessions, as Evan said, they would be left along the side of the trail. You might find family heirlooms of a different family that had just passed through earlier. It was said, and this story made me laugh, there was one man who was later dubbed Rolling Pin Smith, who was nearly in tears about giving up his rolling pin, saying that it had belonged to his mother. And when there's like an eight-year-old girl who's reporting this in her journal, Mm -hmm. that a grown man was almost in tears about a rolling
1: pin. That's pretty funny. (laughs) Just of all the things she got, she left him a rolling pin and this is the keepsake.
0: Come on guys. I don't want to leave my
1: rolling pin behind. It's not that much weight. Can I just keep it? That's what my thought was too. It's, how much does a rolling pin weigh? Like I'm, I'm assuming pounds? he
0: probably just had to leave like everything he had. Oh, because yeah. Maybe he was sharing a wagon with someone or something, and they're yeah. like, "All of your stuff's got to get out of here." Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, or or maybe they were so sick of hearing him talk about this rolling pin, but actually never using it. I
0: could roll bread with it. I could roll (laughs) cookies with it. I could roll the bacon out so it's flat and it gets nice and crispy with it. Think of all the I could hit someone on the head
1: with it. There's Mm -hmm. so many. You don't know how many things you could do with a rolling pin. One of the most efficient and effective items on the Oregon Trail. Wow, get rid of it. Yep, (laughs) throw it in the river. So there was real tough decisions ahead
0: still, despite the fact that they were having to abandon their wagons and possessions. And around July 11th, the party began to approach the split in the path, which would decide who would take the path to Oregon, the established trail, and who would attempt the new Hastings cutoff. And as they approached, some began to doubt their decisions and were leaning towards taking the established route after James Kleiman's warning. And... That was coupled with the fact that there is a lot of people in these wagon trains that were becoming disillusioned by the idea of traveling to California. They already had an established trail that would take them to a place that people already knew, and they're already behind schedule, running low on supplies. Why don't we just go to the established trail that we know will get us there, will get us there safe? It also didn't help that war with Mexico was looming in California.
1: (laughs) Yeah, some political unrest, if you will.
0: As fate would have it, a lone messenger decided to wander into all of the wagon camps carrying a message from who else but our good man, Lansford Hastings. The note said that all California-bound emigrants would encounter him personally once they arrived at Fort Bridger, and he would lead them through the cutoff himself. So... Obviously, James Reed is like, oh, let's go. I'm meeting meeting the guy that wrote the book that I'm following. This is exciting. Someone can take a sketch between me and him. (laughs) (laughs) But this still did not persuade everyone. And this would become known as the parting of ways because on July 18th, the California party had appointed the titular man of the story, George Donner, to be the leader of their group. And the Oregon-bound emigrants had split off and formed their own camp because they were leaving the party. As they made the decision to set out, only one person in the Donner party said that they should change their minds and take the other route. The leader of the party, George Donner's wife, Tamsin Donner. And she was kind of spot on here that they should have done this.
1: She had a point. Points were made. She, she
0: did have a very good point. So. At this point, Sarah and the Graves family and their party are still attempting to catch up to the Donner Party, and by the time they arrived at what would become known as the Parting of Ways, the Donners had already been gone a few days. The Graves party arrived at Fort Bridger on August 3rd, four days after the Donners, because the Donners had left quickly to try and catch up to Lansford Hastings. But even though they had left quickly, Hastings had already left because another party of 60 wagons came through and he was like, Oh, new friends. I'm going to go take these guys. You guys are stuck out here. And plus 60 wagons. That's just a huge convoy. Think of the money. And it goes to say that I completely disregarded to mention that Lansford Hastings' entire reasoning behind writing this book was because he knew or he already had a settlement set up in California. He's a mountain man, he's been there. Him and a friend of his decided if we can get a new route started that would take people to our settlement. That's going to make us a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So he decided to propose an unestablished trail that he had never even been on for people to come west to California just so that he could make a
1: little more cash. Yeah, this was 100% business motivated. He wasn't doing this for the love of adventure or anything romantic like that. It was definitely to get a couple more uh, dollars in the pocket. This was
0: very much greed. and. He's not going to be the only one that's going to cause the deaths of multiple people because of his greed. The Graves party had bought some extra supplies at madly inflated prices because Fort Bridger was the last stop on the trail before moving on into the uninhabited areas, and they had literally no other settlements in there that they could stop at to get anything that they would need. So, they got new supplies— and also got some advice from the two men who ran Fort Bridger. One man named Jim Bridger, who the fort is obviously named after, and his buddy, Luis Vasquez, had told James Reed the same advice. And that advice was, quote, The new road, or Hastings Cutoff, leaves Fort Hall Road here, and it is said to be a saving of 350 or 400 miles going to California. That's not true at all. It's actually 125 miles longer than the, the established route. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> and, takes, and on
1: wagon. Too, takes about so. a
0: month longer. So, not great start here.
1: No, but just probably being James Reed hearing that, his eyes probably just glistened. Oh, yeah. Thinking, oh, I can just save the entire trip. You gotta be kidding me.
0: <laughs> In addition to this bad advice, Bridger and Vasquez had also deliberately failed to tell the parties something that would be detrimental to their futures. A man named Edwin Bryant had left warnings with Vasquez and Bridger for James Reed and anyone else following him, telling them to avoid the Hastings cutoff by any means. It was utterly impractical for wagon trains and was not passable. But for for Bridger and Vasquez, who would... Benefit greatly from emigrant travel if the new route passed right past them to go west, these warnings would have presented a problem because then this trail would never get established. So they deliberately failed to mention it, and the Graves family pushed on to catch up with the Donners.
1: Yep, so again, lied for greed and to get some extra coin.
0: Yes. It's not all on the Donners and the Graves and all of the families associated that this went so wrong. Because they were going off of all of the information that they had at the time.
1: And the information that they were getting was from people who were supposed to know what they were doing. I mean, they did know what they were doing, but like the, they were like established mountain men, pioneers, all that. By all accounts, should have been genuinely
0: good information. Yes, yeah. So from this point on, the Donner Party was destined to struggle. Shortly after leaving Fort Bridger, a couple of the children in the party were off riding their horses when one of the ponies stepped into a hole and threw the boy, whose name was Eddie Breen, off of the horse, breaking his leg. Now, for us today, that doesn't sound that bad, just a broken bone, but on the trail, this could be fatal. So Eddie's parents had to now make the decision on whether to have his leg amputated to avoid infection or to try and
1: set the bone themselves and carry on can't imagine being a parent and having to just decide that for your son. Do we set this? Like, do I have to set it? Or do we just cut this thing off? Because
0: either way, if you're setting it, you're setting a bone in a rudimentary cast Mm -hmm. with no anesthetic, or you're cutting off your son's leg with also no anesthetic. Uh, Ew. So initially, the Breen's found a traveling mountain man who was at Fort Bridger and inquired for him to amputate their son's leg. So just for a reference here, it was a very important service that these mountain men had offered, and it basically was the difference between life or death a lot of times. And the year before the Donner Party had left, back at St. Joe, there was a a quote card or something similar to that that listed the prices for an actual doctor for what these services would cost. So I'm going to list a few of those as examples for how much this service would cost people on the trail. And for a mountain man who is traveling, I'm assuming he probably charged even more.
1: Yeah, for a mountain man, that's not a doctor. Yes.
0: So these prices, according to the rates agreed upon by the physicians at St. Joe, were listed as $1 for medical advice or an enema, $0.50 to open an abscess or extract a tooth, $5 to amputate a finger or toe, $10 to amputate an arm, and $20 to amputate a leg. And if you were pregnant on the trail and decided to keep the baby, delivering babies professionally would be $5 per baby, although that was kind of reserved
1: more for medical professionals and less for the mountain men. <laughs> and thus the American healthcare system was born. Ta-da! Yeah. I hope they had insurance too. Oh man, if they were out of network, can you imagine? <sighs> <Trat. laughs> they couldn't find it in-network hospital. Talk about tragic, my right? <laughs> So as the Breen's literally
0: had to hold down their son while he screamed, they realized that they could not go through with having a mountain man in the middle of the forest cut their son's leg off. So they paid this mountain man $5, and it was said that he walked away dejected, not being able to use his skills.
1: So He just had his axe in his <laughs> yeah. hand, like, oh,
0: man. Pulls a saw out of his bag with bright-eyed and bushy tailed and he's just, oh.
1: I'm picturing being just absurdly long and, like, waggly saw yeah. see like in cartoons where they like kind of shake it and it makes that metal yeah. whooshing noise
0: it, it i literally imagine a cartoon man like walking away with his head down like kicking the dirt just like god oh, i just want to i just want to cut off the leg and then no you know, one ever I just, freaking let me. I just, no, just want to cut off one calf so james reed decided that he would set the break the best that he could and the party continued on After setting the break, James Reed, along with Charles Stanton and another man named William Pike, rode on ahead to find Lansford Hastings. He had left them a note warning them that the conditions were bad ahead for wagons and to send a messenger ahead to meet him so that he could propose a different route. Hastings had found firsthand just how dangerous this path was when, while trying to get his wagon party across the group resorted to using winches and pulleys to help hoist wagons and oxen over the very steep inclines in the Wasatch Mountains. When the winch failed, it sent an entire wagon, oxen and all, sliding down this steep incline and off the cliffside to their deaths. (sighs) That's just one example of something that they had to
1: go through. The amount of faith that they put in this man, the Lansford Hastings. Yeah.
0: And... I just love that James Reed along the way entire time is being told don't take the Hastings cut off. Don't take the Hastings cut off. Hastings sucks. Don't take the cut off. Then he meets Lansford Hastings. He's like, hey, don't take the cut off. It sucks.
1: (laughs) And he still goes onward. Yeah. And he's like, well, can you show me a different way, Mr. Hastings? Because at this
0: point they're too far along that they can't really turn around. Right. So you got to just stick with it. So that's. Pretty much exactly what Lansford Hastings did was he pointed out a different possible route, but instead of showing him the route himself and taking him there, he pointed to it, said, that should work, and then said, go do it on your own. Because he didn't want to be there when they found out that it was still a sucky path.
1: Yeah, he ruffled their heads, ruffled their hairs, and said, go get him, champ. Literally.
0: So, he, er, he being James Reed, returned back to camp on August 10th, and found that the Graves family had had time to catch up and had joined the group. Now that the Donner party was established and complete as it would be, Reed took them forward to this new proposed route that Lansford Hastings had given him and decided to name this new pass after himself, naming it Reed's Gap. What a hero. So, very confident man. Yes. (laughs) So going along this new Reed's Gap was very slow, very tough because this new pass was nearly impassable for wagons, too. The men in the group had to perform backbreaking manual labor, clearing trees and brush to literally create a trail for the wagons to go through. The last section of the trail alone took them three days of constant labor to cut through the trees uphill, and even then, once they got through that section of the path, it was blocked at the very end by a boulder. So, they decided, we're going to go around it, Went around it, took another three days, and this area that Hastings had told them would maybe take a
1: week to cross took them 16 days. Not a great estimator of time. No. Mr. Hastings. For something
0: this important when you're already behind schedule, and I just can't imagine being in the group of men that are like, all right, we have to cut down literal oak trees and pine trees and brush to create a road that is somewhat passable. Uphill. Yeah. Not, not a good time, but this is not nearly the worst part
1: of the journey for them. Yeah, again, like it slowly keeps getting worse yeah, and worse yeah, 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 and yeah. worse.
0: So at the top of the hill where they got to, it's the end of the Wasatch Mountains, and the group finally could see their next big obstacle, which was the Great Salt Lake Valley. But before their journey across had even really begun... One of the young boys was with the Donner party that they had taken in with tuberculosis named Luke Holleran, died from said tuberculosis. So he died in Tamsin Donner's lap. They caught up with the rest of the party and buried the young boy in the salty ground of the Salt Lake Valley. People are already dying. The desert expanse that Lansford Hastings had said would only be 40 miles was actually nearly twice that. So, when the party began into the salt flats on August 31st, <laughs> so when the, party, <laughs> when the party started into the salt flats on August 31st, they found that the water was all foul and the oxen slowly began to fail.
1: Right. They don't call it the salt flats for nothing. You're yeah. not going to find some great water in there.
0: So, not only that, but the heat was getting slowly more intense in the daytime and the nights were getting slowly more cold and utterly
1: dark. As is tradition with the old desert.
0: Yes. The parties were walking alongside the wagons this entire time. Literally throughout the day and throughout the night for the first two, three days. When the ground was dry, it was fine. It was crunched under their feet. But the damp ground proved to be similar to gelatin in consistency and was difficult to traverse. So now the wagon train really was getting strung out for miles. The goal for this section of the journey was to get to Pilots Peak, which was the first big landmark and had fresh water at the base, but the animals could go no further without any water. So, James Reed, being the family man that he was, decided to abandon his family to go on ahead to find water for himself, as did a few of the other groups, leaving their wagons and their families and their oxen in the desert. Reed found the water, but once he had rested and given his horse water, he returned back to find that the Teamsters that he had left his oxen with had lost most of his oxen. Yeah. <laughs> so by September 10th, the groups realized that they wouldn't have enough food to make it to California, and decided to send Charles Stanton and another man named William McCutcheon ahead to California to get more provisions. So And hope they come back. <laughs> yes. So... Losing oxen, oxen are dying, people are literally having to abandon all of their possessions because the oxen can't pull anymore. They literally have given up. They don't have any water. All of this coupled with constant walking along a desert floor with not a lot of extra clothes, Mm -hmm. it's starting to become a very
1: uncomfortable situation. Right. And again, it's the desert. (laughs) Like, it's literal salt flats. And I'm sure they ran into a scorpion or two at this point as well. So by September 26th, the
0: party had reached the Humboldt River they had passed through the rest of the Salt Valley, finding that the cutoff pass that was said to be 300 miles shorter and saved them a month was actually 125 miles longer and took them a full month longer than what it said. So now... As is to be expected, tensions were running extremely high and everyone was on edge. And on October 5th, things came to a head. No one really knows exactly what happened, but it is said that as the groups were taking turns pulling their wagons and oxen over a steep pass, John Snyder, who was a single man who had come along with the Graves, got his wagon team entangled with another man's wagon team, who was named Milt Elliott. James Reed... Ever the leadership role in this situation confronted John Snyder. John Snyder threatened to whip Reed and instead hit him on the head with the butt of his whip. So Reed proceeded to grab John Snyder and stab him, puncturing his lung. And the popular young man who danced jigs in the camp
1: coughed up blood and died. So this is this is just a great time. The power just went straight to this man's head. He's like, well, he in my defense. He did boot me, so I had to stab him. Guys, I just named an entire pass after
0: myself that got us through the mountain that took us over double the time that it should have, and now we just passed through a desert in a month longer than it should have taken. So I don't know why you guys are mad at me, but... (laughs) And all of our cattle are gone. (laughs) He literally has one cattle at this point. He has a cattle. (laughs) Yeah, and he pretty much is like relying on other families now to help them pull stuff.
1: Heavy is the crown.
0: (laughs) So now the group convened and had to decide what to do with James Reed. He had obviously already garnered a bad reputation for his arrogance and bad leadership. And many of the party members, Louis Kesselberg specifically, whose name just always pops up with everything bad, really wanted to hang James Reed. But cooler heads prevailed, and they decided that instead they were just going to banish him forward on his own with barely any supplies, which was tantamount to a death sentence at this point. Luckily for James Reed, his wife and his daughter still liked him enough to steal away in the night and give him some crackers and his weapons, and James Reed left the group. Families slowly began to abandon all of their wagons when oxen couldn't pull the weight, and all of the families were now walking. Anyone who wasn't walking before was now walking. For example, there was one hobbled elderly gentleman who was forced to walk and slowly fell further and further behind the rest of the group until he sat down one day on the ground and disappeared into the distance, never to be seen alive again.
1: That's the ultimate, I've had
0: enough of this, or I'm getting too old for this. Literally. Yeah, he was riding along in the wagon, and someone said we literally cannot let you do this anymore because our oxen can't pull that much weight, even though you probably weigh like 100 pounds, so yeah. wet. But, and
1: he said, fine, I'm going to sit on this rock. <laughs> yeah.
0: In addition to the animals failing on their own, they are having to deal with Indian attacks now too, with one attack from the Paiutes stealing or killing almost 40 of the party's animals. It wasn't until October 17th that the group finally encountered Truckee River. It was a welcome source of fresh water, but it signaled that the hardest part of their journey was now ahead, which was the Sierra Nevada mountains. By the 18th of October, the party had begun its travels again. Charles Stanton, one of the men that went ahead to help get extra provisions, had now finally returned to the group and brought some dried, b- dried beef and flour, but Bill McCutcheon, the man he went, to California with, had fallen ill on the journey and stayed back. And Stanton had mentioned that he passed a very gaunt figure on his way through the pass, finding later that it was James Reed. (laughs) He's
1: just the ghost that never goes away.
0: He literally will not die. So the party crossed and recrossed Truckee River and finally reached Truckee Meadow. For the first time, now the party could see the eastern edge of the Sierra Nevada mountains. They rested in the meadow for a few days to let the livestock graze and to let themselves rest, but then they quickly began to realize they still would not have enough provisions to make it to California. Another advance party was set to leave. A man named William Pike and another man named William Foster. Lots of Williams and lots, lots of Bills around this yeah, time period. Bills was
1: just a big name. Lots back of Jameses in like and lots of Bills. Right, and a lot of Whitman or Whiteman. So the two men... As they were setting off to
0: leave on this advance party, one of their weapons, Foster's weapon to be specific, discharged and hit Pike square in the back and he died.
1: That's just the toughest luck.
0: Not great. Because now Pike's wife was now a widow, had multiple children to take care of, and they're already low on supplies, Mm -hmm. so... As we mentioned earlier, if you're a widow on this trail, it's not easy to survive, especially
1: <laughs> when you have to take care of kids. Yeah, multiple children and your husband just died of straight up bad luck.
0: Yeah, accidental gunshot, man. They, they get you. They get like, Can you imagine just riding a shotgun, literal shotgun next to your dad in the mm-hmm. wagon and getting shot by a shotgun because it just accidentally hits a bump rung?
1: <laughs> right, yeah. No one pulled the trigger. It was just
0: straight up a bump. Peace. So this bad omen marked the beginning of months of tragedy for the group, and by October 30th, the group had set up camp just 10 miles short of the pass that they needed to traverse to get to California. They had seen snow at the summit of the mountains around October 7th, which was a month earlier than usual, but when they woke up in the morning on October 30th, they found that their camp was already under a couple inches of snow too. This sight signaled the beginning of the end for many of those in the Donner party. And that is where we'll pick up with part two of the Donner
1: Party. Oof, the foreshadowing. Uh, it doesn't get any better. I hope that y'all can maybe make it next week, but I am ecstatic. It's, it's going to be a good, it's a great story, but it's just so, so rough. It's so, yeah, it's so tough. And it's just so much of it happens, just the littlest thing by today's terms, yeah, which wouldn't be fatal. Like, for example, what we've talked about with someone breaking their leg and not going well for them.
0: Oh, and someone's going to literally get a cut on their arm that's going to pretty much make them unusable for the rest of this time period, which... Stick, to, stick around for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's Like I said, it it's no better from here on out. It actually gets much worse. Wow,
1: shocker. So shocker, if, you,
0: shocker. If, if you haven't heard anything about the Donner Party and don't know what they end up having to do to survive, oh boy, buckle up for a
1: ride. For real, buckle up, don't
0: eat anything. <laughs> yep. So I should mention at this point that James Reed had made it to California. So while everyone else is getting to... The worst part of their journey, James Reed is pimping in California, oh, setting up land
1: deals. <laughs> he's enjoying the nice, sunny breeze.
0: Yeah, he's, he's having a good time. Left his family again, but yeah. that was not by choice this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, until next week. Enjoy this first part. We will be posting pictures of the Donner Party and the Oregon Trail to give you guys visual representations of some of what would go on Mm -hmm. on our social media. So if you want to follow us there, you can keep in touch
1: with all of that. Evan, where can they find us? You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at What Evskys. You can also find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast and finally on TikTok at Gems of History Pod.
0: All right guys, that's all we got for you this week, but please do stick around. It it only gets to be a more interesting and more heart-wrenching story yeah. as we go. The
1: story keeps on getting better, but the time for the donors and the Donner party, not great.
0: Yeah. But this is why I love history because these very intense and very As we've said multiple times, harrowing stories are some of the most fascinating things to to learn about, despite the subject matter. So, Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I'm excited excited. for part. It'll probably be a two parter, and we'll finish the story next week. So, look forward to that, everybody. Mm -hmm. Everyone, take care of yourselves. Don't die of tuberculosis or accidental gunshots (laughs) or
1: typhoid fever or spraining your ankle, breaking your leg,
0: or suffocating under bugs.
1: That was just a sneaky one we kind of glanced over. (laughs) (laughs) So have fun with those thoughts. Yeah. But
0: everyone take care. We will talk to you next week.